there's no way to know that Jesus is trustworthy aside from being with him through the trial. There's no way to know that. So Jesus chooses the 12 here. He creates this apostleship. He sets them apart. One of them he knows all along to be a betrayer. But now let's look back up to verse 14 again. And he appointed or he created 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So let's look finally at this what they're appointed to. They're appointed to, first of all, to be with Jesus. So let's not miss out on that. They're appointed or they're created as this this group of apostles to be with Jesus. The larger group of disciples is not said to be chosen to be with Jesus. They're chosen to come to him. But the apostles are created or chosen to be with him. And so this being with Jesus, we see here just just right out, out of the gate that this This is the first and the most fundamental step of discipleship. Discipleship just cannot be separated from intimacy with Jesus, from being with Jesus, from connection to Jesus. And I know that sounds like a really simple, really just straightforward thing to say, but it is so true. Discipleship cannot be divorced from just simply spending time with Jesus in his word, in prayer, in the corporate worship of his people. Spending intimate time with Jesus, being with him. We think of Acts chapter four, when when two of these apostles are going to be drugged before the council and they're going to say, you know, we recognize two things about them. First of all, we recognize that they are uneducated men. But secondly, we also recognize that they have been with Jesus. Something about being with him was apparent to those who say, we recognize these people have been with Jesus. That is how we are disciples. That is how we make disciples of ourselves. That's how we make disciples of others, is we make disciples of ourself by being with Jesus, by spending significant time with Jesus. We make disciples of others by helping others to see how to spend time with Jesus, by encouraging others to spend time with Jesus. It really is the starting point for everything. It really is the non-negotiable fundamental foundation for everything of the Christian life is intimate connection with Jesus, of being with Jesus. But we also see that not only is this discipleship to be a task, but it's, it begins with a relationship. But this, we also see that this being with Jesus is something that we, I think, can maybe think of it sort of in romantic kind of terms of... Uh, Uh, Just this romantic idea of sitting at Jesus' feet. Like Mary. Remember the Mary-Martha story? And here's Martha working in the kitchen, but then here's Mary sitting at his feet, just sort of soaking up his attention or his teaching. And then Martha comes and complains. And then Jesus says, well, Mary has chosen the better. She's chosen to sit at my feet and to hear this teaching. And so we can kind of think of this being with Jesus as this idyllic sort of romantic notion of just, peaceful communion with Jesus. Now the disciples, the apostles, are going to be with Jesus in that way quite a lot. From chapter 4, verse 34, we're going to be told that there's 
this parable that Jesus tells that of the soils and not everybody understands that. And so Jesus will take his apostles aside and privately explain it to them. Now, we don't know how many times something like that's going to happen. But over the next coming years with Jesus, that's going to happen untold numbers of times where the apostles are going to have an experience with Jesus, time with Jesus that's close, um, uh, up, up close and personal and intimate. They're going to be the recipients of teaching that the others don't receive. And particularly, there's also going to be the three, uh, Peter, James, and John, who we're going to see them spending even more significant time with Jesus. They're the ones who go on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They're the one who, ones who go with Jesus to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. They're the ones who are, are asked to pray for him the night of his arrest in Gethsemane. So we're, we're going to see that they're going to have this time of peace, communion, close, intimate teaching and fellowship. But their time of being with Jesus, we should be careful to see their time of being with Jesus is not just that. And neither is it for us either. The apostles being with Jesus is going to include from this point on every single trial that Jesus will endure up until his arrest. They will be with Jesus when Jesus has nowhere to lay his, lay his head. They will be with Jesus when he has nothing to eat. And like we saw from the previous stories, all they have to eat on the Sabbath day is just some heads of grain that they pick with their hands. They will be with Jesus when the Pharisees spew venomous hate toward him. They will be with Jesus when the Pharisees pick up rocks to stone him. They will be with Jesus when the crowds begin screaming to crucify him. They will be not at his side, but they will be sharing all these trials and tribulations up until the point that he separates himself to endure the arrest and the crucifixion alone. So their being with Jesus is going to include a tremendous number of trials and sufferings and hardships. So being with Jesus is both the peaceful, idyllic communion with Jesus and the hardships of suffering with Him. As He's going to say in chapter 8, verse 34, if you're going to follow Me, you're going to do it with a cross on your back because you are going to die to yourself and you're going to pick up your cross and you're going to follow Me. So the same is true for us. When we say, I want to be with Jesus, I want to... I want to be with him in this communing sort of way. We must also understand that being with Jesus involves suffering with him. It involves the hardships and the trials, which are necessary. Because without the hardships and the trials, there would be no way for us to know that being with Jesus means being with a powerful, trustworthy one who will bring us through. There's no way to know that Jesus is trustworthy aside from being with him through the trials. There's no way to know that. There's no way to know unless you're on the boat with Jesus in the storm. There's no way to know that he is powerful, that he is faithful, that he is trustworthy, that those trials will pass and he will bring you through. It's like if you were to buy, say if you were to go down to the car lot tomorrow and you were to buy the biggest, baddest off-road vehicle they sell, 450 horsepower, four-wheel independent suspension, locking differentials, big old mud tires. 
and you drive off the lot with that off-road vehicle and you never take it off the pavement. And somebody comes and says, wow, this thing looks pretty awesome. What does this thing do in the mud? I don't know. I don't know if it goes through a mud puddle or not because I've never taken it there. That's like the disciple who wants to be with Jesus but doesn't want the trials with Jesus, doesn't want to be on the boat in the storm with Jesus. It's only the trials that show you how powerful he is, how trustworthy he is, how faithful he is. So these disciples will be with Jesus through that. But then the other thing that we see here is that Jesus appoints these 12 apostles. And it's really helpful for us to remind ourselves that the ones he's appointing here, he's really appointing 12 nobodies. Scholars believe that the average age of the apostles when Jesus appointed them as apostles was their late teens. That throws a little bit of a different light on it, doesn't it? That these weren't men in their 30s. These were most likely men in their late teenage years who were themselves nobodies. They were fishermen. One was a tax collector. But I mean, there are no religious leaders. There are no leaders of any type. There is no one of any societal respect aside from possibly Judas. Aside from Judas, there's no one who garnered any, any sort of respect among the society. These were just plain nobodies whom Jesus chose to follow him and to become his apostles, which shows us once again, Jesus is wanting to clearly show us the value of what he will make these people to be, the value of what he will put into them instead of the value that they bring. They don't bring value to Jesus. They don't bring value to the table. It's what Jesus will make of them. Like 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. It's not the the old jar of clay. It's the treasure inside the jar of clay. Or it's not, as Paul is going to say in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, it's not our strength that shows God to be strong. It's our weakness. It's our weakness in which He is strong. And so these 12 nobodies, they, they are made into what we will be told is the foundation of the church. For eternity, the church will exist as the the church founded upon the 12 apostles. So these 12 nobodies, this this group of late teenage years kind of fishermen and those whom, once again, eight of them, we're never going to hear from them again. This is what Jesus will take and he will make his church from this. It's almost like, I was thinking of this analogy this week. It's almost like if, if we were to think of the robe of righteousness that Christ puts on us, right? We all know this robe of righteousness that the Bible uses this as a metaphorical picture of the righteousness of Christ that we put on. So just imagine, imagine the man who has this torn, ragged clothes. And, you know, he's, he's got a shirt that's got holes all over it. And it looks like he's changed the oil about 12 times in the shirt. And, and uh, then he went and cleaned out the, the restroom down at the gas station in the shirt. And then he went and mucked out some stalls. And, and the shirt smells. And it's ripped and torn and stained and it's faded from the sun. And he's got these pants with holes in them and they're all faded and torn. 
And then Jesus gives to him this perfect robe of righteousness, this perfectly white, perfectly sewn, perfectly tailored robe of righteousness. And he takes off these filthy rags and he throws them to the ground and he puts on this robe of Christ's righteousness. And then he reaches down and takes that filthy shirt and puts it on top of the robe and then takes the pants and pulls them up on top of the robe. That's this filthy, oil-stained, faded, torn-up old clothes and he puts them on top of this perfect robe of righteousness. And then he says, not too bad, huh? I got a few holes, a few couple of stains, but who doesn't, right? So glad I got the robe of Christ's righteousness. But then, but then look at how this, this clothes, this shirt now fits on top of it. All the holes and the tears in the shirt, the robe of righteousness now covers those. You would say, what a fool. What a fool. But isn't that what we often do with the robe of Christ's righteousness? We seek to take our filthy garments and say, oh, I'm so glad I've got this robe of righteousness from Christ, but let me put this shirt back on, on top of it. This would be to kind of hearken back to some of the language of chapter 3. This would be like the new wine and the old wineskin. Or this would be like the new patch and the old garment. To say, you know, that robe of righteousness is not compatible with those filthy rag clothes that you've got. That robe of righteousness cannot be worn in conjunction with those filthy old clothes of yours. Those need to be burned and thrown into the fire. Like the Ephesians threw their books of sorcery into the fire. Those need to be thrown into the fire and the robe of righteousness be the only covering. Jesus chooses 12 men who are nobodies that he can take this robe of righteousness and he can make them into what he wants to make them into. And then as the Spirit comes to them and we see the picture of them in the New Testament, then we see the picture of people wearing the robe of Christ's righteousness. Now, one last thing. One last thing. We'll see this in their equipping. Once again, from verse 14, he appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So he's going to send them out with this twofold authority. The word authority there is not uh, the word. Your, your translation might have power, but it's the word exousia, which, which specifically means a delegated t- kind of authority, an authority from another. So Jesus is vesting them with the authority to preach and the authority to cast out demons. They don't have in themselves any sort of miraculous power nor will they have any sort of miraculous power all through the book of Acts that's all their own. They will instead only have what they're going, what Peter and John will say to the crippled man on the steps of the temple, silver and gold, I've got none, but here's what I can give you in the name of Jesus Christ. That's all that they will have is this delegated authority, this delegated power, but this authority is given to them twofold. First, to preach and to cast out demons. Now, here we see a correlation between the apostles and us because we are given the same authority. And I don't mean that we have authority to cast out demons. Instead, 
They're given the authority to preach, or in other words, to proclaim the way of salvation with authority. And they're also given the authority here to cast out demons. But what casting out demons means for us in our context is to show people the power, the expulsive power of the gospel in us. That's what the casting out demons is pointing to in us. In us, we have the authority to proclaim the message of life, the the gospel that gives life, and also to proclaim what we talked about last week, the testimony of the power of that gospel in our life, of the preciousness of that gospel in our life. We are given the same authority, the delegated authority, to say to a watching world, here's the gospel that saves, and here's the power that that gospel has to cast evil out of your life.